Hey, everyone. It is Then Again with Glenn here at the Northeast Georgia History Center. We are back from a short hiatus. And to celebrate the end of that hiatus, I have drug our very own Libba Beecham into the studio. Hello. Libba. Hello, everyone. Happy to be here and in front of a mic instead of uh, back behind the scenes. That's right. <laughs> she still has earphones on, but that's yes. okay. <laughs> so we realized that one of the characters that has become incredibly popular here at the Northeast Georgia History Center, we haven't really talked about on the podcast, and that is Juliet Gordon Lowe. And Libba took it upon herself shortly after you got here to take that character on, and it has become the runaway success of our live streams and webcasts and things like that. So, Libba, tell us what it was that initially drew you to Juliet. Well, it was actually a request from a teacher because Juliet Gordon-Lowe was added to the Georgia Standards of Excellence, which is basically what teachers must teach. <laughs> so uh, I'm happy to know that you know Juliet Gordon-Lowe is part of the Georgia history curriculum. So... Once we had that request, it kind of started out as a custom program for one school, and then we started noticing that everybody else was excited about Juliet Gordon-Lowe, and now uh, she's become one of our most popular characters. So we also featured her during our, uh, let's see, was that 2017 Chautauqua season? Yes, that's correct. So one of our summer live performances, and that was the first time that I performed Juliet Lowe live, and without a teleprompter. <laughs> so it was a bit nerve-wracking in a way, but um, you know, all of the research that went into it was just absolutely fascinating because you may know of her as the founder of the Girl Scouts, but even before her time in the Girl Scouts, she has really this, it, there needs to be a bio-flick movie about Julia Gordon-Lowe because there is so much drama, so much intrigue, there's war, there's romance, there's art, <laughs> there's so much to her life. Um, and it's not until she's in her 50s that she starts the Girl Scout movement in the United States. So there's a really long untold story about her earlier life that I love to bring to students and to teachers because so much of her early life you see the connections and all the dots that are connected as to why would she start this movement why would she be drawn to this and it's really because she had the same interests and passions and enthusiasm as she did as a kid. So she, she was always looking for some way, in her words, to be of use in this life. And, of course, being a woman of, of wealth and means most of her life, um, especially after she got married, she still felt that she needed to be of service somehow and Girl Scouts was that real, like that perfect combination of all of her interests and in the outdoors and nature and traveling and skills of self-sufficiency and, and of course, uh, empowering young girls, um, especially when she herself was unable to have children of her own. So it, it, the Girl Scout movement really offered her all of these things that were missing in her life. And um, to bring that to uh, school students, I think they can connect uh, with Juliet Lowe. And they're especially excited because so many people were Girl Scouts or Boy Scouts growing up. So to learn more about this movement and to learn more about this fascinating woman, I think, is a really great thing, not only for scouts, but just for students in general to be inspired by. 
Right, and and you know, if y'all haven't seen a picture of her, be sure and look one up because every picture you see, she has this look in her eye of fantastic mischief afoot. Oh, right? yes. <laughs> Those gears are always turning. She's always got something funny or clever to say. Yes. And she, as you say, she had a lot of um, she had a lot of struggles and challenges in her life, she and really yet did. they did not slow her down very much at all, did they? Right. That's one of the most admirable things about Juliet Lowe. I mean, she she grew up in a comfortable household. Um, she was wealthy. Yet the challenges that she faced, one, she had chronic ear problems as a child. And the ear was just not very well known during this time. Things were treatments for ear issues um, were pretty experimental. And in fact, it, one of those experiments led to her losing uh, even more hearing in one of her ears, an experiment with what was called silver nitrate that um, the story goes that she was the one to uh, insist <laughs> upon getting this treatment. And uh, unfortunately, it did fail. Um, so she she grows up having chronic ear problems and the silver nitrate incident happens. And then in such a bizarre accident on her wedding day of all days, when the guests are throwing the celebration rice, one of those grains of rice lodges into her ear. Her good ear. Her good ear, nonetheless. (laughs) And the surgery to remove that grain of rice impairs that ear. And I mean, you can imagine you're just newly wed And for Juliet Lowe, this also meant because she married a wealthy uh, Englishman, uh, she moves to England and she moves to, actually it was Scotland. She moves to Scotland where she doesn't know anyone other than her husband. And now she can't hear him. She can't really communicate that well. She's sick for weeks and she's homesick and alone. And, And it's this time in her life that is... Uh, uh, really one of the the tragic parts um, of her life. But I, I think we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. So, well, so she, the, the point is, is that she, with her, we don't call it deafness because she was not deaf. She was not part of the deaf community. She did not use sign language of the time. Uh, she did, however, try some technologies that were very early types of hearing aids. So one was called an acousticon, Um, which was basically just a way to receive sound and amplify it through a speaker you would hold up to your ear. Um, But she had to get used to lip reading, so that was something that she would have employed. But from anecdotes and the uh, research that I've conducted, it, it often was the time that um, she would just kind of go along and and just ah, ha, 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 you know like she's just trying to trying to pass along in the conversation and and the thing is is that if she's doing the talking then she doesn't have to be doing the listening so so she was very sociable very amicable um, despite this challenge and uh, I mean people knew that she was hard of hearing and and this did get her into a few um, humorous incidents uh, on one occasion she was and this is a great example of her uh, eccentricity as well. So she's out at this fancy party and she decides, you know what? I'm going to get some of the men and women to go night fishing, impromptu night fishing in our tuxes and dresses. And 
you know, maybe they were bored. They go along with it. <laughs> and as she's casting her reel, uh, she gets something and she and she starts reeling it in. She's so exciting. She's she's yelling, get the net, get the net. Well, she didn't catch a fish. She caught one of the guest's ears. <laughs> and luckily he was not like, you know, severely hurt or anything. But you can imagine that that story was told many, many times. Oh. Um Another occasion in which her hearing got her into a funny situation was um, she was attending a banquet and she noticed that everybody rose up and started giving it a standing ovation. So of course she doesn't want to be rude. She stands up herself and she starts applauding and applauding and she did not realize that <laughs> they were applauding her. <laughs> so she was giving herself a standing ovation. <laughs> I'm smiling as big as she can. Yes, yes. So, oh, yes. so I mean, this really speaks to, uh, I mean, we'll get back to her earlier life, but you can, like this, this sort of childlike quality or energy and enthusiasm and passion and this sort of relentless um, eccentricity uh, really shown throughout her whole life. And that was very much present in her childhood as well. There are many uh, crazy daisy anecdotes that um, are, are in my research too. And uh, speaking of daisy, I mean, many people probably know that she was called Daisy. We have daisies in the Girl Scouts as well. And um, that was a common nickname during her time. And um, as far as I've been able to tell, it it, it was uh, given to her by her uncle, who said, I'm sure she'll uh, be a Daisy, you know, when she was born. So that kind of stuck, stuck around with her and um, became Crazy Daisy and then later Hurricane Daisy. <laughs> <laughs> Hurricane seems to be more appropriate yes. for her. <laughs> yes. So she's, she, and you know, she grows up in... A particular type of society and she sort of certainly breaks the bonds of the expectations of that society for a, a young lady she's supposed to be demure and learn to to knit and to sew and to marry a husband have babies and then be quiet uh, she she don't do that no <laughs> you know I mean there were there were many traditionally feminine qualities about Juliet Lowe I mean she was very much into fashion and well, the she, latest yeah. dresses and ribbons and would be requesting uh, money for new dresses and sashes in her letters when she was a girl uh, away at school um, but she was also very much what we would call today like a tomboy um, she was Always getting into something, <laughs> whether and she loved the outdoors. She loved animals, especially. Uh, there's a, a few funny stories when it comes to animals. Um, one of which is my my favorite one is probably the cow. Uh, so she's a young girl, and um, her family. Now I don't know if this was on. I mean, this must have. They they had property in I believe it was Thunderbolt, uh, Georgia, where they. Um, had like a, a farm situation. So I don't know if this was in Savannah or, or on their farm, but wherever they kept the cow, um, <laughs> it was a cold night and Daisy was just sure that that cow was going to freeze to death. So she goes to the guest room and takes a beautiful blanket from the guest bed, goes down to the cow shed and throws the blanket over the cow and is just sure that that cow is going to stay warm. Well, 
her mom and dad wake up the next morning and see that the the blanket's trampled in the mud and the cow's perfectly fine <laughs> and she's she gets into a, a little bit of trouble but I think her parents saw that as a worth worth the blanket because it was again another story told many many times um, another quick anecdote about her love for animals was when she was at boarding school she came across a, a little bird that was uh, sadly deceased <laughs> and mm. she thought uh, this bird it, it deserves a funeral so she and her friends got this little box and decorated it and put the bird in the box and she even gave the bird a eulogy <laughs> and recited you know how thankful they were for the bird's song and the bird's wings and its beauty and I just think that says so much about Daisy in her childhood that she is such a giving person she wants to be useful. She wants to uh, honor the things that she loves. And, and, uh, and for the Gen Xers out there, yeah. she wasn't doing that ironically. She legitimately oh, no. felt that this was something that was a serious thing. Oh, yes, yes. It was a very serious occasion. So uh, she got <laughs> her love for animals and nature, I think, is particularly present throughout her life. So we've got someone who um, loves the outdoors, loves animals is full of energy, uh, but gets married, doesn't have any kids of her own, must, must have some sort of longing for that. How do we get from, from Daisy the outdoorsman and socialite to someone who creates an organization for young girls? Well, you know, I, I think this actually goes back to uh, the, when, from when she was born, because you got to keep in mind that she was born in Savannah, Georgia in 1860, what happens in 1861? Ooh, I know this one. What, it's Glenn? the Civil War. That's right. <laughs> so from her earliest days, she did witness, you know, or, or at least experience struggles uh, because, of course, Savannah uh, suffered like many larger cities from blockades and, of course, actually having Sherman come through Savannah. Right. Um, so her mother... I think really instilled her with these values of being self-sufficient because she herself came from a family who was very well known in Illinois for being one of the uh, first families in Chicago. And they, they kind of founded the, the city of Chicago. Uh, her grandparents on her mother's side um, were in the fur trade. And her grandmother even wrote a book called Wabun that is about their experiences among the Native Americans. So they were a pioneer family. So her mother was also taught these skills. I mean, she knew how to make her own clothes, own shoes, garden, etc. So these are skills that uh, came very useful uh, during those challenging early war years. And Daisy and her uh, older sister would have experienced, um, you know, hunger and uh, having to make do without. So these are things that are very much present in her life to begin with. And then, you know, fast forward years and years. Yes, she does grow up in a more traditional, um, wealthy family. You know, after the war, they're, they're okay. And that's, right. long story short, that is very much because of her mother's connections to, in the North. Because this is interesting. Her mother's family is on the Union side, and her father is fighting for the Confederacy. So there's also just this sort of confusion. Like as yeah, a, I can't imagine that as a four or five-year-old Yeah, kid, right? Yeah, she's only like three or four during the, yeah. the Civil War. 
I think that what her father instills in her is that sense of loyalty to a cause. I mean, I do not expect that four-year-old Daisy knew what was going on <laughs> at all or could have any kind of opinion on the war. But what she did hear from her mother and letters from her father um, and her father being very much a, a military man and a businessman were these values of dignity, of loyalty, of doing your best, of being useful in life, serving somehow. And, and you know, her father, despite uh, being a Confederate, uh, I don't know if he was, I guess an officer, I'm, I'm not quite sure what the rank was. Uh, after the Civil War, he actually did quite a bit for um, the Freeman societies that were in Georgia mm -hmm. and in Savannah. But... Anyway, so there's those values from the very beginning. And, of course, scouting is very closely tied to the military because a scout is a military position at this time, and I'm sure still is. So you're learning all of these military skills. So she would have been familiar with at least the, the, the life of someone who served in the military. And, and so like these are the pieces that I think are carried into her Girl Scouting movement. But... I think that the biggest reason that she joined the Girl Scouts is that she was actively seeking something to do with her life because unfortunately her marriage fell apart. Um, they intended to get divorced, but um, William Lowe actually uh, dies before they can actually finalize that. They lived separate lives for quite a number of years. Um, he was having a basically open affair with a very well-known socialite in England. And so, one, it's, it's, it's a lot of shame that she's feeling or embarrassment that she's feeling. She feels like a failure in some regards. And because she's had so many different interests throughout her life, I mean, she, she thought she might have been a sculptor because she was very uh, talented and, and well-trained in sculpting. She thought she might have been a painter. She was a, a phenomenal painter as well. Um, but she didn't have that that thing that was hers and that she could do and be of service to until she meets someone <laughs> named uh, BP is what she called him <laughs> but this is <laughs> Sir Robert Baden Powell and he is a very well-known um, British officer in uh, th that's very famous from what was called the Boer War and he is the one who started the Boy Scouting movement and they happened to be at the same uh, banquet of some sort and were sitting near each other and this immediate, uh, you know, friendship, basically. And he really encouraged her to become interested in girl guiding, which was sort of the sister organization of the Boy Scouts at the time in England. So we're talking about, you know, 1900s, like 1911 was when she probably would have had this conversation. And she's immediately fascinated. <laughs> and she even writes to her parents that... You know, basically, I'm paraphrasing, but essentially being like, well, I have a new interest, you know, because she's gone from all these different things. And um, that's nice, dear. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, I don't really know what the joke is, but they would often refer to uh, her as a, a girl, the girl scoots. <laughs> and I, I don't know what the jerk, jo what the joke is there, but um, they didn't take it very seriously at first. They thought this was just another crazy Daisy whim, but it clearly was not. And um so she starts out, you know, doing girl guiding in England for a couple of years, and she's serving um, a, a working class of girls. So 
in this would have been in Scotland and in England at the time. So this is around, uh, you know, 1911, 1912. And she, you know, she gets the experience of what is it like to be a leader of a girl guide uh, troop. And, you know, she's teaching them skills, mostly what working girls needed at the time. So uh, a lot of skills in just learning basic hygiene and how to properly nourish oneself with, with food and grow your own food. So things that are going to elevate the status and the, and the quality of life for these girls. So not necessarily totally focused on like the fun stuff like, of right. like archery and going out camping and stuff. This was very much like these girls needed these life necessities and these life skills. And that was super valuable to them. But she gets excited about bringing this to America. And in 19, um, let's see, 1912, she does come back to Savannah. And the story goes that she calls her uh, friend and cousin Nina Pape, who was quite a progressive um, educator for women in Savannah and young girls in Savannah. And she says, uh, we're going to, uh, I've got something for all the girls of Savannah, all the girls of Georgia and all the girls of the country. And we're going to start it tonight. And it, it, they essentially did. <laughs> <laughs> and they started with a, the, the first two troops were of uh, 18 girls. Many were, um, you know, and en basically enlisted or recruited from like family members that they knew and using their own connections. Social networking, right? Yes, social yes. networking. And in fact, the very first uh, Girl Scout was her little niece who was also nicknamed Daisy, which is, Aww. I think, very fitting and super cute. And um, so that's when it starts in Savannah, but they're still called Girl Guides. It's not until 1913 that it's actually the girls themselves who insist that we're going to be called Scouts. <laughs> and <laughs> Juliet Lowe says, yeah, <laughs> well, we're doing everything that a scout does. And um, there's a lot of, there's actually a bit of controversy that comes from that because a girl can't be a scout. Don't tell me they were wearing pants or something crazy like that. Well, not quite yet. Okay. They were still wearing, <laughs> still wearing skirts. <laughs> but the thing is that they were doing boyish activities, or, you know, I put boyish in, in quotes yeah, there. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so, Running, uh, jumping, playing outside, oh, yes, tumbling over one of the most, bushes. One of the most shocking things was that <laughs> these girls were playing basketball what <laughs> yes yeah, so there would be there's there were stories of um like they were playing basketball in the in the um courtyard not like a basketball courtyard but you right. know like in uh, the backyard in the backyard <laughs> of Juliet Lowe's house in Savannah, and people would just gawk at these girls. So uh, this was so distracting um, to Juliet and to the girls that she ended up putting hedges around <laughs> so that they, the people would not gawk at these girls playing basketball. Um, and, and, you know, from there, the movement just rapidly grows. Uh, like I said, there were controversies that arose with competing organizations. Like there was one called the Campfire Girls that – Oh, they did similar activities, but they were not, I mean, they were, they were pretty much doing domestic skills that were expected of young girls and still, you know, very valuable organization for the time, uh, building camaraderie among girls, but uh, they were not pleased that there was an organization called Girl Scouts. And that took some time to really earn the trust of people and to prove themselves as an organization. And the time that they really did that was during World War One. So the scouting movement in World War I, um, especially for Girl Scouts, was 
really their rise um, to to fame in a, in a way and to really being recognized for the value that they offered because they're doing volunteer services. They are creating care packages for soldiers. They're teaching women back home how to best care for themselves and their children without a husband there. And they're even recognized by um, Mr. Hoover himself, who was uh, residing over the uh, food Oh, it was a thrift program. Mm -hmm. um, so they're selling war bonds. They're doing all of these really valuable public services. And this is when Girl Scouts, uh, perhaps this is when uh, Juliet's family stops calling them Girl Scoots. <laughs> 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 and they, they become recognized for the valuable organization that they are. Well, and so it's interesting that that's about the time they do it. So national service contributes to this rising reputation of the Girl Scouts at the same time that women are starting to be seen as, well, you know what, maybe they, maybe they can help us out. Maybe they are worthy, quote unquote, worthy of the vote because it's only two years after the war ends that you get the, the, the 19th Amendment. And it seems like that gives a boost to girls' and women's efforts to be seen as a valuable part of society, and the integral, right? Of, oh, well, yes. I'm going to take all the adjectives away. A part of society, yes. right? <laughs> and so... Going forward, how was uh, how were the Girl Scouts, and how did she continue to grow it so rapidly to, from something that started one night in her kitchen to a nationwide organization? You know, um, I I really admire that Juliet Lowe knew her weaknesses. She was terrible at organization, um, <laughs> and she was one of she was the visionary. She came. She was the one who sort of lit the flame of excitement for the people around her and the women who helped her grow this organization and to really become an, a, a real organization rather than some like you know it's kind of started as a, a pet project in a way because it was so small in the beginning, but. I mean, by the time you get to 19, you know, 18, 19, 20, there are tens of thousands wow. of Girl Scouts at this time. So, And it started when? 1913, oh, excuse me, 1912 was when the Girl Guides started. Girl Scouts happened in 1913. So this is in a matter of years. It's That's really, less than a decade. Yeah, it yeah. explodes. And she can't do this on her own. And she realizes that. And in fact, um, in 1920, once the... I mean, you're, you're talking about maybe like 100,000 Girl Scouts at this point. There are, um, you know, she there, there are complaints from her staff because they, it can't be run by this one person, you know, like, especially in a time where you can't have quick communication or anything. So she, I, I appreciate that Juliet listened to her staff and the women that she had grown, uh, had put so much trust in. And she steps down as um, the president of the Girl Scout organization and becomes the founder and still a very active role. But now she is allowing the way that she put it and that a friend of hers who kind of wrote this letter to be like, hey, Daisy, things got to change. Basically, <laughs> she said that, you know, this is your child. But every mother experiences the moment when you have to let your child grow into the person that they are going to become. And she allowed that to happen. She did that. She listened to the women around her that had helped her grow this organization. She steps down and trusts them. 
And of course, you know, <laughs> uh, we, we already know what happens to Girl Scouts. It just continues to grow and grow. And to this point, I mean, there are literally millions of Girl Scouts around the world now. And that was one of Daisy's uh, or Juliet Lowe's visions was to have this be a worldwide organization. So that dream comes true. And I don't know if it would have if she had held on to that control when it was just impossible for her to really allow that organization to grow as much as it could under uh, the limitations of her control and her skill set. So that's something I really admire about, about Juliet Lowe. With this amazing lady and all she was able to accomplish, not just in her own lifetime, but she gave birth to something that continues to this very day. What's the one takeaway you want people to have from Daisy? What life lesson do you think she is the best exemplar of? You know, uh, I there are a lot of things I recognize in myself that I connect with Daisy, and that's one of the reasons that I love portraying her. And that's one of those things that I am also this person who wants to do so much. <laughs> but I she kn- is, folks. I know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> but I also recognize my limitations and and the the need to rely on other people who feel the same passion for you know here at the History Center for for history and education and to help be a part of what the future is going to be like, because I think Daisy was very forward thinking. She was always thinking about how she could be of service. And here she is as a woman who did not have any obligation to do any of this. (laughs) She could have been a wealthy woman painting and doing her sculptures and traveling the world. Um, But she didn't. She saw that, you know, oh, oh, by the way, I mean, speaking of her wealth, she funded Girl Scouts herself well into, I mean, in the very early days, I mean, probably up till like the 1920s. When, uh, <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised until she dies by, uh, she had uh, breast cancer and she does pass away um, in 1926 or 27. I can't quite remember. Um, but she was this woman who saw that she could help and she tried her best to offer uh, help to the world. Um, and despite her prejudices that she definitely had, um, despite the challenges of her loss of hearing, you know, and, and the challenges that that presented, despite her being a woman who had expectations upon her that uh, she went totally against, you know, and despite suffering loss through her life and tragedy and her family and her marriage, all of these things where she could have just been like, nah, I'm just going to yeah, I'm just going to hang out here and, <laughs> and take it easy. Um, she decided to go uh, the more challenging path. And that's something that I really admire about her. And that's something that I think we can all be inspired by by Daisy, uh, especially because uh, I was talking about how she was forward thinking. Um, one of the things I, I saw in one of her letters was that she was saying that, you know, she knew that Girl Scouts was going to grow and, and grow beyond her and that she felt that Girl Scouts needed to take the path that the Girl Scouts decided. She decided her path and it led her to Girl Scouts. But now, just like this organization is is like a child to her, she knew that she had done everything to prepare that child for the world. And I think that's what all Girl Scout troop leaders are, are you know, attempt to do. And 
that that's a really noble thing to offer to young girls. And of course, this also goes into Boy Scout leaders as well, to young boys, the scouting movement in general. So, you know, whether you earn a badge for it or not, there's a lot uh, that you can learn from the scouting movement. And so I encourage uh, anybody who's interested in learning more because we have barely scraped the surface of all the fascinating details and anecdotes um, and uh, and research. I, I really encourage you to read The Remarkable Founder of the Girl Scouts, Juliet Gordon Lowe by Stacy A. Cordery. This is an excellent book. And I, I really appreciate the way in which Cordery writes. It really feels like you're almost like you're reading historic fiction because some of it's just unbelievable. <laughs> right. That's the best kind of history. Yeah. <laughs> this but can't there, be real. Yeah. But there's also so much um, primary source uh, research that uh, is utilized in this. So you really get to hear her her voice, you know, the way her sense of humor is and, and just all these uh, small stories that really bring the full picture um, to life and realize that. So that is um, by Stacy A. Cordery. I'm sure we'll have a link in the description yep. of the book. So, um, and coming up on October 31st is uh, Founders Day, which is also Daisy's birthday. So I'm sure you'll be hearing a lot about Juliet Gordon Lowe. So I hope that this prepared you to be, uh, to have those conversations and to get people interested in her as well. That's right. Get ready, folks, because this is, She's kind of a big deal, yes. as we say. As we say, well, Libba, thanks for uh, stepping behind the, from behind the computer to in front of the microphone for us. It's always good to to get you in here. And folks, that's all we have time for today. But we appreciate you listening. We can't wait to get you some more podcast episodes up. So keep tuning in every week. And until we see you again, stay safe and take care. Then Again is a production of the Cottrell Digital Studio at the Northeast Georgia History Center. Be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. It really helps other people discover the show. There are a few great ways to support the History Center. Make a donation online by clicking the Donate button on our website at www.negahc.org. Become a digital member to receive exclusive invites to members-only live streams every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern. And you can register on our membership page at www.negahc.org. We also have an online gift shop with lots of great items for all ages. Use promo code THENAGAIN for 15% off your online order. Valid on anything except memberships and handmade items. We'll see you next week for another episode of Then Again. Thanks, y'all.